Well, hi, everybody. It's a privilege, uh, really a privilege, to be here to labor arm-in-arm arm with Joe Booth. That is truly one of the greatest men of God I've ever met. And I've met a lot of them, by God's grace. And for CCL to forge an alliance with the ICC, I'm all in with what uh, Joe and his wonderful staff and volunteers are doing. I've come to love and respect all of them. And a privilege to be here with the other sponsoring ministry, my dear friend, Dr. Peter Jones of Truth Exchange. He's the old man in the back that's trying to stay awake. Uh, Peter's in Southern California holding down the fort. I'm in Northern California holding down the fort. And as you've probably heard, we're, we're just doing making waves in California. I mean, it's turning back to the Lord. Great revival and reformation. So actually, Peter and I and our respective ministries have a big job set out for us. Uh, and I'm privileged to meet all of you. It's been great. Hope to get to know all of you very well. Um, I want to mention quickly, you and I are standing or sitting amid a miracle. The Runner Academy and this particular venue is nothing short of a miracle. I don't have time to enumerate that. Maybe at some point Joe will mention a couple of the high points. All I can say is that this is the work of the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Um, if you're thinking that uh, the lectures this week are going to be uh, above your head, I'd like to just set your mind at ease. They will be, but that's a good thing. That's how you learn. I want to be talking in these the two lectures about worldviews of the West, and before your eyes glaze over, uh, I, do, um, I can get animated and keep people awake. I'm about a third Pentecostal, only a third. <laughs> so uh, bear that in mind. I've got a very bare-bones outline. Uh, the reason for that is I want you to invest in making notes. So if you work hard in making notes, you might keep them, keep them, put them into an analog folder. It's called a manila folder. <laughs> and one day you might open them up and say, oh, there was this really big, loud, annoying guy that spoke 30 years ago, and he said a couple of good things. So I want to go back and find them. So feel free to do that. I don't have the time to to give you this entire talk. If you want a version of it, the full version, the unadulterated version, if you just pay, no, if you if, <laughs> if you contact me, and I'll give you contact data later, just you can send me a, for one thing, just a Facebook private message. I'll be happy to send you the send you the whole thing. Okay, everybody understand that? All right, so let's get going. Um, worldviews uh, are like pancreases. You never heard that before, have you? Everybody has one, whether you know it or not. Uh, the Christian faith, as Joe pointed out, is larger than a worldview, but it's certainly not smaller than a worldview. A worldview alone won't make you a devout Christian, but you can't really be a devout Christian without one. When Jesus Christ opened the eyes of his disciples after the resurrection, he was illuminating them to what we would today call a worldview. Their lives were changed largely because Jesus changed their view of the world. If Christianity doesn't change our view of the world, then in a real sense, we can't be Christians as we should be. As we think, so we are, Proverbs tells us. We're required not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by our mind's renewal. The West itself has been shaped by several leading worldviews, not just Christianity, and as these worldviews seep into people's thinking, they shape the way that they act, and this in turn molds our culture, what you see around us. 
People have worldviews, and cultures have worldviews. Understanding the worldviews of the world into which we were born, the world that we must evangelize and Christianize for the Lord's glory, is imperative if we're to live as full-fledged Christians and not simply people waiting for heaven. Let's talk, uh, I'm going to talk in this first uh, lecture about scholasticism, enlightenment, and romanticism. Again, I'm going to skip some of these points, but I think you'll get the, the gist. A Western culture from the 4th fourth, fourth to the 18th centuries was sculpted by principally two worldviews. The Christian worldview, which is to say the biblical worldview, and the sophisticated pagan worldview of the ancient Greco-Roman world. This is sometimes called the classical world or classicism. These two worldviews, biblical and classical, were forged into a third worldview. This was the medieval worldview known as scholasticism. Um, are there any Roman Catholics here by any means, any whatsoever? Okay, I'm going to say like a couple of negative things, but I'm not being... What's that? You're a third Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say a couple of negative things. I'm not on the attack. Um, I'm, I'm no, never, for, never for attacking anyone or anything, never criticizing Joe, right, about that, never criticizing anyone, so I just want to let you know. My motives are good. Yeah. Uh, this was, I said, the medieval world, you know, to scholasticism. Uh, this union, this synthesis was not a healthy development. It's a mistake made even by educated Christians to assume that biblical faith is compatible with or reinforced by this ancient classicism. It most certainly is not. The Hebraic biblical faith stands in radical antithesis to the sophisticated paganism of ancient Greece and Rome. Now, unfortunately, at a very early stage, Christian thinkers began to import alien ideas surrounding them, to make Christianity more plausible to its cultured despisers. Schleimacher used that language, but I'm using it here. The, these educated uh, Greco-Roman pagans. Among the so-called church fathers, perhaps better we could call them the church babies, if you think about it, uh, the early apologists were especially guilty of this. It's for this reason we must never make the church fathers authoritative in our understanding of the faith. They were no different from Christian teachers today, whether me or anybody else. They don't somehow gain authority simply by being dead for a long time. John M. Frame has a, a former colleague of uh, Peter's makes that point. He says, it's amazing how we give people the, the halo of an aura of authority the longer they're dead. Well, that's not Christian. We judge them by the word of God like we do everything and everyone else. Now, don't misunderstand. Many of them hammered out an accurate systematic theology, particularly with regard to the Trinity, the divine and human natures of Christ, but they generally did not understand soteriology very well. That's why the Reformation was necessary. They were usually wrong in their apologetic methods, how to defend the faith. They developed an ecclesiasticized Christianity rather than pushing outward to reform and redeem every area of culture and thought. Sacramentalism replaced the dominion mandate. So they're not especially reliable guides. That might sound heretical in some circles, but... I'm okay there, Joe. I'm, I'm right. You're not going to pull me out. The hook's not coming. Okay. During the Middle Ages, as Christianity became more prominent, this tendency to compromise the faith with classicism hardened into the scholastic worldview. Herman Dewey called it a ground motive. I think Joe is actually addressing that notion of ground motives in one of the subsequent lectures. It's the nature-grace distinction. 
And I guess if there's only one thing that you need to understand today about scholasticism, it's this is the main problem. I might skip the others. Uh, the nature-grace distinction. It was the essential feature of the scholastic worldview. In its basic sense, scholasticism means the word itself. I want to get to that before I go more into the nature-grace distinction. Scholasticism means the kind of thinking that goes on in schools, uh, particularly in universities. The university began in the Christian Middle Ages. The kind of thinking that went on there became identified with good old-fashioned Christian reasoning. Unfortunately, it was an amalgam of biblical faith and Greco-Roman paganism. But since the church was dominant, this compromised thinking was able to parade under the banner of Christianity. What are its leading features? Again, I may only do just one or two of these, but mainly this nature-grace distinction. First, for the scholastics, the world is understandable in two different but compatible ways. First, there is nature, and then there is grace. Now, as noted above, the, the, the post-apostolic apologists, though well-intentioned, had already synthesized the biblical methods with the sophisticated paganism of the time, Greek philosophy, in an effort to make the faith very credible. Now, this compromise did have its critics, like Tertullian, some of you may know about, but the church in many places embraced this unstable alliance between biblical truth and Greek philosophy. By the high medieval era, the most towering thinker of all, who was Thomas Aquinas, had specifically fashioned a theology, an entire theology, the Summa, incorporating the leading thoughts of Aristotle, the pre-Christian pagan intellectual, who in the Middle Ages was considered the paradigm for all rational belief. Now, so here we get to it. The medievals were able to maintain this unstable alliance by creating a double-decker epistemology. Double-decker epistemology. How many of you here are British or have visited Britain and London and know about the double-decker buses? The double-decker buses. Here they are all the time going around London. Well, common reason and experience accessible to all people, Christian and non-Christian alike, constituted the lower deck of nature. That's nature. This lower deck of the bus. Um, salvation and dogma and the church and the sacraments and eternal life occupied the upper deck of the bus, which is what? Grace. Nature's on the bottom deck, grace is on the top deck. Unaided reason was autonomous on the lower deck, but it was invited to submit itself to Jesus Christ if it were to climb up to the higher deck. So then assumptions common to both Christian and non-Christian ruled in the world, and distinctively Christian assumptions ruled in the church. Now, I said this worldview emerged from the university. The university itself was based on this double-decker epistemology, um, <clears throat> or view of knowledge. That's what epistemology is, by the way, most of you know, view of knowledge. Unaided reason was to be a tool to understand the natural world and also to defend the mysteries of the faith. It seems not to have occurred to the scholastics. Money line here. It seems not to have occurred to the scholastics that reason itself needed a religious underpinning or presupposition. They didn't seem quite to understand that. They also seem not to have understood that reason could possibly lead to other places than the Christian faith. They assumed that if you used your reason properly, you'd always interpret the world and subsequently the faith correctly. And even unbelievers could do this if they used their reason properly. This is another way of saying they didn't take the noetic, that is the mental or intellectual effects of sin, very seriously. All rational people of goodwill could be persuaded of the Christian dogma. Then let's jump right into uh, scholastic theology proper. 
and then maybe quickly to natural law. Now, the scholastic worldview didn't include just epistemology and education. It also involved theology proper, their view of God. The scholastic view of God conformed to their nature-grace worldview. It was set forth most effectively by Aquinas, who relied heavily on what Greek philosopher? Aristotle, the good doctor, the great doctor. For Aristotle, God was a postulate to make his system work. And if you've read Aristotle, you know what I'm talking about. There had to be something behind everything in this cause-and-effect universe. And therefore, there had to be a God of some kind. We have to invent a God. There has to be. Aristotle was famous for describing his God as the unmoved mover. Everything in the universe was moved by something else, but God was behind everything else starting the moving process. And he wasn't moved. He moved everything else. This was not a personal God, but an impersonal God and a force. Uh, Aquinas, by contrast, certainly did believe God was a personal God. He knew that what the Bible said about God, but he was heavily invested in Aristotle, so he combined the biblical view with the Aristotelian, or classical view. God is truly a person, but he's aloof. He's immutable in a way that the pagans defined immutability, and not as the Bible defines it. He was without passions or emotions, because to the Greek philosophers, passion was an inferior quality. He couldn't be impacted by his creatures. This is, I must say, an interesting sort of God, but it's not the God of the Bible. Unfortunately, this sort of philosophical theism survives into our own time. We're going to move on beyond natural law, because I think I'll address that uh, later, and move on to the transition to the Enlightenment, which I really want to get to, and then Romanticism. So scholasticism was the great worldview of the Middle Ages, but it was inherently unstable, and it couldn't last, and therefore it didn't last. Scholasticism, in fact, teed up Western culture for the next great worldview shift. How did scholasticism do this? This is important to understand. The Roman Catholic historian Christopher Dawson, uh, a Brit, by the way, brilliant man. Anybody read anything here by Christopher Dawson? I would recommend his write, almost all of them. Remarkable Roman Catholic, utterly fair with the Reformation. Dawson observed that when enlightenment needed a paradigm for its super-exaltation of reason, I'll get to that in a moment, it had one, I love his language, ready at the hand, the scholastic nature-grace distinction. It simply lopped off the upper deck. I don't like that upper deck, the Enlightenment philosophers said, of nature-grace and sacraments and church documents and the Bible and priestcraft. I'm going to lop it off, and we'll just keep this same old lower deck of nature. Uh, therefore, when Enlightenment broke that hegemony of the church, uh, it also broke any distinctive Christian influence. The compromised church itself was therefore responsible for its own subversion from the 18th century onward. For today's radical secularization and repaganization that Dr. Jones is going to talk about, we have scholasticism largely to thank. Here's an important lesson to learn. Here's the application before we get to enlightenment. Anytime we compromise the faith trying to adapt it to the world, anytime we try to make it pleasing to its cultured despisers, anytime God's revelation in the Bible and Jesus Christ and creation isn't sufficient for us, we will eventually lose the faith. The Christian faith is not synthetic. It's not designed to be joined to something else, to make something higher or better. If you want to know why the Bible is filled with prophets and apostles opposing false teaching, 
it's because false teaching eventually destroys the faith. Joe was being beamed up there uh, by Frank. Uh, <clears throat> don't become disturbed or embarrassed by godly pastors and leaders like those here at Runner who expose false teaching. We're just trying to preserve the faith. We're not trying to be mean. As Joe does sometimes, not me. <clears throat> not of the enlightenment. Enlightenment is the first modern worldview. Sorry for the quick transition, but we've got to get to this. I might even have to wait for romanticism later. Uh, enlightenment is the first modern worldview. It's simply not possible to understand our world apart from it. All of the other worldviews will investigate from here on owe a debt to the enlightenment. That word itself implies a worldview. The great enlightenment thinkers, you hear, how many, some of you here mention philosophy, how many of you here have Okay, so philosophy, history of ideas, you know about Kant and Hume and Locke and Voltaire and Leibniz. They interpreted the medieval world as the Dark Ages. I mean, even the expression Middle Ages suggests this sort of uh, chronological inferiority. They essentially divided history into three periods. The classical world, ancient Greece and Rome in particular, which they admired. The Middle Ages, which they abhorred. And their own time, uh, the Enlightenment, which they valorized. Uh, Christianity and the church and priests and theology and the Bible are full of superstition kept in place only by arbitrary authority. These thinkers and others like them saw themselves as the revolutionary torchbearers to bring illumination into this tragic darkness. We're going to skip that next quote from Kant, um, Ryan, and just want to mention at the core of enlightenment is the rock-solid conviction that man must never accept anything on authority. He must employ his own autonomous reason, guided by experience, to arrive at the truth. Only in this way can man and his society dispel the darkness that Christianity and superstition and mysticism and irrationalism impose on the world. And to be honest, there was darkness during the medieval era, just as there's darkness during every era when sin dominates, though the Enlightenment vastly exaggerated the darkness of the Middle Ages. What the Enlightenment uh, did, however, wasn't that it wished to shed light on darkness, but that it set up an entirely new way of viewing and living in the world. In other words, a dramatically new worldview. One writer said, not until the Enlightenment were Christian ways of thinking about God and man radically transformed. It's easy to understand why. The Bible and the faith aren't compatible with man's autonomous reason. Make no mistake, Christianity is both reasonable and rational. God gifted man with reason as a kingdom-extending tool. Man's mind and reason are extraordinary divine gifts, and they've yielded extraordinary results in culture. In the ancient world, the Egyptian pyramids and the Roman aqueducts, and then in the modern world, skyscrapers and antibiotics and iPhones, the testimony to man's extraordinary reason is everywhere. But man's reason was never designed to operate autonomously, and in fact, it can't. It always operates in terms of the heart's disposition. Understand what I'm saying here. Reason is captive to the heart. Creator-worshipping reason, its legitimate use, is set against creation-worshipping reason. Oneism, it's apostate use. Both can lead to breathtaking results, but neither is autonomous. What Enlightenment did was to adopt the pretended autonomy of human thought. The pretended autonomy of human thought. 
This meant that reason refused submission to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Bible. And this in turn meant that man must get rid of the Trinity, the inspiration of the Bible, and eventually all miracles, since none of these harmonizes with autonomous reason. There were great differences among the Enlightenment philosophers. The only thing, I quote this from Peter Gay, the only thing they had in common was a critical attitude toward any sort of orthodoxy and especially toward orthodox religion. So you think of enlightenment, you think of the exaltation of reason, judged through experience, but particularly reason as the judge of all things, autonomous reason. All right, now I'm going to skip a couple of parts here. I really want to get significant parts. I really want to get to romanticism because I think it's more relevant for today. So there's like a lot of that I just skipped. If you want the full discussion of the enlightenment then uh, that I have, again, just contact me, I'll send it to you. But I must get to... We're going to what, to 215, Susie, right? Okay. i got to get to Romanticism. Um, <clears throat> if um, in Enlightenment, uh, Enlightenment positioned a man in his reason and experience as the measure of all things. But it was collective man as the measure. In other words, Enlightenment held up shared human reason and experience as the final authorities. If everybody could just put their prejudices and private opinions aside, rely only on common sense, we could all arrive at this glorious, rational truth. Now, it won't surprise you to learn that this rationalism of enlightenment produced a cold, sterile world. Romanticism in the late 18th, early 19th centuries emerged as a reaction. Romanticism didn't like the uh, idea of universal or shared reason and experience. It wanted to champion what was unique about every individual, not what humanity had in common. Romanticism is the first wholesale movement of individualism in world history. By the way, how many of you in philosophy or elsewhere, maybe history of ideas, have studied romanticism or the romantic movement, romantic art, romantic... Okay, so some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, the majority of romantic figures were artists in one form or another. Beethoven, Blake, Coleridge, Goethe... Uh, Mozart, Poe, Wordsworth, and scores more. Uh, there's a reason romanticism was largely, and not exclusively, an artistic movement, and you'll understand why in a minute. But it was an artistic movement driven by a certain way of thinking. And that way of thinking became a worldview. And it molded the world at the time, and it molded our world too. Our world is deeply drenched in romanticism. More even than enlightenment, which still influences us. Um, <clears throat> so, what are some of the leading features? Uh, let's get to inside-out epistemology. So, some of these leading features, good on the time here. Uh, first, the Romantics were among the first to embrace what I'd like to call, uh, Nancy Murphy actually first called, an inside-out epistemology. By that I mean they didn't want uh, knowledge to conform to the external world, but rather wanted uh, the external world to conform to their own imagination, their own feelings, their own emotions. Any of this starting to sound slightly familiar? Um, <clears throat> the Romantics wanted to say that every person has his own unique way of thinking, of emoting, of acting, and of being in the world. This is particularly true, of course, of artists, those tortured personalities who enjoyed a higher degree of emotional intensity, according to most of the Romantics. Now, the Romantics weren't against the external world, but when they considered it, they elevated nature, particularly nature unspoiled by human civilization and culture. 
as Rousseau taught. This is because nature for them was pre-rational. It wasn't a part of the universal rational categories of the Enlightenment. Yet they weren't trying to conform to nature, just the other way around. Nature simply nourished their own unique inwardness. Nature was wild, nature was chaotic, nature was dynamic. This is what romantics believe that man is like on the inside. And this is why they felt a deep kinship with nature. Nature was one with their internal being. Now, romanticism contributes mightily to today's neo-paganism, the New Age, concern for spirituality. The important thing is not being right with Jesus according to his word, but simply being spiritual in your own way. This means being in touch with your true self, with your feelings, and with the natural world. Second, uh, romanticism demanded deep-rooted irrationality. The romantics weren't ignorant, far from it, but they revolted strongly against reason. If for Christians, reason is captive to one's heart relationship to God, for romantics, reason is captive to the irrational, to emotions, to feelings. For this reason, the romantics were enthralled by the stranger elements of life. Few people have put it better than Isaiah Berlin uh, in describing what fascinated the romantics. And I would like that quote up there. If we go, oh, this is just... Isaiah Berlin, great writer, not a Christian, on the history of ideas, outstanding. Powerful quote. You want to know about romanticism, this is what you know. And I think they're going to be able to, Susie, get all of, these, all of this right if you go to the website. All right, here it is. You want to know what romanticism is? It's the strange, the exotic, the grotesque, the mysterious, the supernatural. Ruins, moonlight, enchanted castles, hunting horns, elves, giants, griffins, falling water, the old mill on the floss. Darkness and the powers of darkness, phantoms, vampires, nameless terror, the irrational, the unutterable, the pursuit of novelty, revolutionary change, concern with the fleeting present, desire to live in the moment, rejection of knowledge, past and future, the pastoral idol of happy innocence, joy in the passing instant, a sense of timelessness. It is nostalgia. It is reverie. It is intoxicating dreams. It is sweet melancholy and the bitter melancholy, solitude, the sufferings of exile, the sense of alienation, roaming in remote places, especially the East and in remote times, especially the Middle Ages. If you thought that quote that Joe put up here didn't like punctuation or long sentences, that was truly amazing. Since the deepest part of man, the most important part, was the irrational, the emotional, the chaotic, these elements in nature that best reflected that internal core are what's most fully, and what's most important to be fully human. Okay, third, and we're kind of drilling down even more here. In some ways, this might be the most relevant, for us today, 21st century, most relevant point of all, I think everybody here almost will identify with this, is the cult, the cult of authenticity, the cult of authenticity. Anybody here, you just need to be authentic, man. You just need to be yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you what to be. Be all you can be. Um, <clears throat> the cult of authenticity. By the, before the 19th century, the right kind of life was determined by how you conform to the Bible, or to nature, or to reason, or to experience. But after Romanticism, the best life, the best life was the life in which you live out what you're privately believing, and feeling. This is the authentic life. The inauthentic people try to please God, or their parents, or their friends, or the wider society's expectations. 
The authentic people, on the other hand, are true to themselves. They follow their heart. Sweetheart, just follow your heart wherever it takes you. Um, <clears throat> so today we hear this sentiment all the time. Uh, be true to yourself. Bernie Sanders is not a regular politician. He's authentic. <laughs> He's certainly authentically weird. When rock stars go wild on stage, ripping off their clothes and breaking their guitars, we admire them because they're expressing what they really are. We have a name for this. Some of you have encountered it, perhaps. It's called expressive individualism. We live in an era of expressive individualism. You validate your unique individualism by expressing yourself, often wildly and bizarrely in public. And the wilder or more bizarre, the better, the more authentic. The idea that it would be better to conform to standards of decency and order, or better yet, the word of God, would put a crimp on your authenticity. Authenticity has now become a badge of social status. This is especially true with diet. You know somebody as big as I am would have to bring that in. <laughs> Think only of the great push for eating only foods that are organic, local, and sustainable. If you eat this way, incidentally, I'm not criticizing you, sincerely. I'm criticizing the lust for authenticity on the part of people who don't merely eat this way, but want to be known as eating this way. Uh, in the words of Andrew Potter, I love his language, it's a form of conspicuous authenticity. I'm the authentic one, because I eat authentic food. You eat like Twinkies, like bacon. I eat authentic food like kale. Don't get me started on kale. Don't, don't you dare. Um, the uh, French philosopher, not really a philosopher, more just a, a thinker, Rousseau, was a sworn enemy of social convention, Society was made up of a hierarchy, and he hated that. The lower classes deferred to the upper classes. There was bowing and curtsying. All of this culture, you see, different classes wore different kinds of clothes. Rousseau hated all of that. For him, people should be judged by the intensity of their conviction and feelings. Anybody here read any of Rousseau before? Okay. Social convention demanded that people be courteous, and I just said that, didn't I? So Rousseau considered all of this artificial and totally inauthentic. It's better for people to say exactly what they are feeling on the inside at the time. It's not just that they could be rude, they could be loud, thoughtless, and overbearing, but they should be rude and thoughtless and overbearing, as long as that's what they were authentically feeling. Now, this meant, not surprisingly, that romantics prize the spontaneous rather than the planned. If we plan or prepare or premeditate, according to certain standards, we're surrendering to external norms. But if we say and do things spontaneously in the heat of the moment, we're authentic. So a more authentic runner would have been that Joe got everyone in the room and said, what do you want to talk about for these two weeks? We'll make it up as we go along. That would be more authentic, you see. Um, if we write out our prayers beforehand, we're not being true to ourselves. Let's be spontaneous in every situation. We just have to let it all hang out. 
Faithfulness, therefore, must take a backseat to spontaneity. Quietly attending the Lord's house week by week, fulfilling your duties to the Lord is boring, formulaic, and inauthentic. inauthentic. The best Christians are those filled with passion and energy who love to make a public spectacle of their devotion to the Lord. They're the authentic ones. You see how this has in, this cult of authenticity has influenced the church. I didn't intend to say that, but I'm glad I did. Romanticism has put an indelible stamp, a stamp on modern music. Um, great book on that, Robert Pattison's book, The Triumph of Vulgarity. Francis romantics value sound and not lyrics. The lyrics are often just dropped in for good measure, or I would say bad measure. The important thing is the guitar riff, the bass line. If lyrics are important, as in a lot of evangelical praise and worship, they're about intense internal passions. God, I love you, and this is how much I love you, and you're so close that I can reach out and touch you, touch you, touch you. Oh, yes, God, I can touch you, touch you, touch you. There's almost nothing about God and his greatness and his majesty apart from how we feel. When I was in England last, I picked up an old Anglican uh, handbook, just the lyrics. I think it was from 18th century. I was just stunned at how different. I don't mean the language. I mean, I don't mean the, the words itself, the nomenclature. I mean the content. Stressing the majesty and the glory of God, you see. It was a very different time, a pre-romantic time. Fourth, uh, for the romantics, truth is not discovered, truth is invented. The important universe is not the external universe, but the internal universe, the great theater of the heart. Since every individual is different, he must create his own universe. I create my own world. I create my own truth. I create my own facts. Uh, <clears throat> for that reason, nobody has a right to judge me. There's no external ethical standard available to judge me anyway. And facts and truths aren't important. My feelings and emotions are what are important. A team wins a big sporting match, and one of the sideline reporters comes up to the hero and says, how are you feeling inside? Not how did you actually kick the soccer ball or what do you call it, football, to, to score. Not that. How are you feeling about this? Romanticism, it won't surprise you, therefore, is the root of free love and the sexual revolution. The truth is my truth, and I get to decide my sexual truth. And this implies the fifth feature. <clears throat> um, reality is a self-portrait. Every person is an artist, though not in a conventional sense. We create, we paint, we sculpt our own lives. We invent and we reinvent ourselves. Before Romanticism, people were born into a world and found their pre-established place in it. Sons often learned how to work alongside their fathers, continued in their vocation. Daughters would learn from their mothers about marriage and motherhood. Even when this wasn't true, people looked at their given life circumstances and decided how best to live within those circumstances. With the advent of Romanticism, alternatively, the world and our place in history is no longer normative. I create my own norms. If my native personality is quiet and reserved, I can reinvent myself as vivacious and gregarious. If I'm naturally cautious, I can recreate myself as audacious. With medical advances, I can completely recreate my appearance, perhaps even my own sexuality. Biology is not destiny. I create my own destiny. I create myself. I am my own best work of art. Then let's skip a couple, Ryan. Let's go to the single criterion because we need to finish up here. 
eighth and finally, actually I think I only mentioned four or five of them. Did I mention that you can actually get the full version of this if you send $16.99 to... Eighth, all of life is assessed by one criterion, whether I feel fulfilled. Before Romanticism, for example, people went to work as a duty to provide for their family. They didn't really care whether they got a fulfilling job. Work is hard. That's why it's called work. Amazing how many young people I talk to and say, well, yeah, I mean, I just like... Uh, I wouldn't take that, yeah, the job at McDonald's, they raised the minimum wage, and even though I was going to pay like $17.99, but I just wasn't fulfilled of uh, flipping burgers. Well, where are you living? Well, I'm just like, I'm 47 and living in my parents' basement, but I just want a job where I'm really fulfilled, man. That's, um, that is uh, romanticism. Slight exaggeration of it, but you know. Uh, today, the romantics refuse to take any job unless they can make money as something that'll fulfill them. Before romanticism, the right kind of life was the life that conforms to external standards and, among Christians, to God's standards in the Bible. In enlightenment, it would be conformity to the standards of what? Not all at once now, you're acting like a bunch of Presbyterians. The standards of what? Reason or the mind. In Romanticism, my own fulfillment is the standard. The great goal of life is to feel good about myself. And if there's any impediment to personal fulfillment, my outlook is gloomy. I deserve personal affirmation. I deserve having my dreams fulfilled. This is Romanticism uh, with a vengeance. Romanticism, in conclusion, is catastrophically mistaken at a number of points, but the root error is its utter denial of original sin. This really was Rousseau with a vengeance. If you read Rousseau, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Man is born free, but everywhere is in change. The, the change. The Bible teaches that because of Adam's sin, we're all born into sin. We're not born virtuous and innocent, but with a propensity to defy God. According to the Bible, therefore, the authentic you and I is deeply simple. The most authentically part of Andrew Sandlin's heart is not really nice. Same is true of you, by the way. That's why we need Jesus Christ. Our goal shouldn't be to discover and exhibit our authentic selves, but to change our authentic selves. And they need to be cleansed. We can, of course, ourselves change them. They need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The only the truly authentic self is the self within Jesus Christ. We don't have that naturally by birth. We only have it by rebirth. This is not the message of romanticism, of course, and it's why our time has become romantically drenched in narcissism. Romanticism has won for now. To restore Christian culture, therefore, we must defeat and vanquish romanticism.